Thank you very much, Dana, for your presentation. So I've got my panelists up here already. I'll be introducing the moderator, Byron Green. Now, I've worked with Byron Green, um, and what I can tell you about Byron is that he's as interesting as the hedge fund industry and equally as hard to read and understand at times as a hedge fund itself. You're meant to laugh there, but it's funny to me anyway. He's one of the funniest guys that I know at the office. Definitely keeps us entertained. Uh, but jokes aside, um, he's one of the go-to people when I need to find out anything about your non-traditional asset classes or asset class strategies, be it hedge funds, investing in Africa, XSA, or private equity. So as the MD of Cavio Fund Solutions, I think he's the perfect person to facilitate the panel uh, that discusses the current and future trends in the hedge fund industry. Please welcome Byron and the panelists. Thanks, Enot. Uh, no pressure there. I understand that the session before this was about ethics, which is quite uh, strange that we're going straight into hedge funds after an ethics, um, an in-depth ethics uh, discussion, but at least this one's going to be a bit more interesting, and uh, we've got all the boring stuff out the way. I've, um, I've gathered together, and we've put together really a, a quite a broad-based, generic, I suppose, panel of people to have a discussion with you this afternoon. We'll hopefully keep it interactive, but we've attempted to put together guys that are not only active managers in the hedge fund space. We've got fund of fund people such as myself um, and Bruce who's in, in, a, in a kind of a, a multifaceted role within Sunam as well. But we've also got an allocator as well, so an institutional allocator. So starting from my right, your right, we've got Shane on the, on the left here, I should say. Um, Shane Watkins is at All Weather Capital. Shane has been around the hedge fund industry without trying to date him too much, at least 15 years, maybe more. Um, he has had time at Peregrine Capital in the single strategy space, and Allweather is now the principal at Allweather Capital, which is a single strategy hedge fund. Um, so Shane will bring, bring to this panel the active management aspect of it. Um, next to him, we have Andrew Crawford. Um, Andrew is at Capricorn Investment Managers, or Capricorn Capital. Capricorn, once again, is also a single strategy fund. They have a number of aspects, not only in hedge funds, but in alternatives. But Andrew is active in both the client servicing and the reporting and the portfolio management aspects of the business. So once again, a fairly broad-based um, kind of skill set that he's going to bring to the panel, hopefully. Um, we've then got the allocator. Um, Grant Haarhoff is a, is a head of an, a, an investment committee on a very large pension fund that allocates two hedge funds and has done historically. So he will hopefully bring that perspective, the institutional investors' mindset, how they view hedge funds, what they seek to attain out of hedge fund allocations, and those kinds of, um, those kinds of issues. And then right on the end, we've got uh, Bruce. Once again, quite difficult to introduce Bruce. He's been around the fixed income single strategy space, where he's been actively involved in, in fixed income hedge fund management for a number of years, typically within the Sunlum stable, but uh, elsewhere as well but now sits within the Sunlam Alternative stable and has a broad-based knowledge of the industry, like I think the most of us. So perhaps we should count up our years of uh, exposures to hedge funds without embarrassing ourselves too much, but I'd hazard to say it's probably 50 plus. I've also been around for a couple of years. 
Where are we? I just suddenly realized that we are heading towards what's possibly the 20th, interestingly, the 20th anniversary of hedge funds in South Africa. The first formative hedge fund strategies started to emerge in kind of 97, 98, um, and got a little bit more man momentum into the early 2000s where there were one or two early starters. We went through to about 2005 where there were about five or six hedge funds that started to emerge. We now have approximately 80 funds, according to our research. Once again, it definitely depends on how you cut and paste it, with well over 120 different strategies. Asset size in the industry, about 65 billion rand. Once again, depends how you count it, but somewhere, let's call it between 50 and 70 billion rand. It's minuscule. I mean, in, in, context, in the context of the broader investment management industry locally, which is in the multiple trillions now, it really is a very small part of the overall industry. But it is gaining momentum, and certainly we're talking our own book here, but I think that we are on the cusp of a, a significant development and an additional a significant um, acceleration in the utilization of hedge funds in the years to come. And the reason for that, and I'm not sure how many of you know this, but I'm definitely not going to go into a long monologue about where we are from a regulatory perspective, but to be frank, for the last 10 years, it's been a complete disaster. Our regulatory environment has been complex, difficult to understand. We run multiple sets of debenture companies with multiple layers of trusts underneath it, just in order to facilitate access into this asset class. That has changed significantly and is in the throes of changing as we speak and as we stand here today. The majority of the hedge fund industry by the end of this year will be regulated under the CIS or the CISCA Act, where we now have a new scheme in hedge funds or schemes in hedge funds, both retail and qualified investor funds. What we think this will do is twofold. It's not just a retail access point that's going to become far easier and far cheaper. We'll get onto fees later, don't worry. Um, but it's also just one of perception around complexity. And it's quite a big step globally as well because there's very few entities in the global space, in the hedge fund space, that have taken these kinds of steps. We see useless hedge fund structures in the... Sorry. Uh, we see useless, useless hedge funds running out of Europe, but that's just really a panel-beated situation. Here we're seeing something that's quite um, innovative, quite new, very new in fact, but we certainly think that from an institutional perspective, investor perspective, they're going to get a great sense of comfort by this regulatory overlay that we now see. And secondly, we're now going to see access to the retail investors as well. I do, however, caution many investors and many participants in the market to, to really just be careful of what you wish for. I'm not necessarily convinced that this is an asset class suitable for what we generically term Granny Jones and her 500 Rand debit order a month, although they might end up in hedge funds. Um, the regulators have gone quite far to try and differentiate between the different risk strategies that are available um, to these investors, but we all know that there will be inappropriate allocations that come to bear in the years to come, and we're just going to have to deal with them. But suddenly now the 65 billion rand industry is starting to swim in a pond with the rest of the CIS market, that one trillion plus industry. So it has a lot of positives, but we have to just be quite careful with how we position ourselves and, quite frankly, how we manage ourselves going forward. That's the end of my story. We've got an hour, and we did start early, amazingly enough. So what I plan to do is I'm going to ask our, um, our esteemed panel, I don't fall amongst the esteemed category, but our esteemed panel, just to give us a, a five-minute overview individually and rotate through, maybe just starting with Shane, 
about how they feel the industry is currently positioned, give you a sense of what they do and how they view the industry and the kinds of benefits they think it can bring to the investment management structure. And I am, I think for the purposes of this discussion, I think we do need to stay local. We can go off on a complete tangent and start talking about international hedge funds. That's a very different discussion. I think we need to focus on the domestic market. These guys are very domestically focused as well. And then I'm just going to ask the, the, them to rotate to give you their thoughts. Obviously, Grant is not going to give you that, but I'm, we're going to ask him to just give some insights and thoughts as to why, as a trustee and an investment committee member, they allocate what they seek to attain from those allocations. Um, after which I'm going to ask a couple of questions of each of them and hopefully elicit some debate, and then we're going to open it up to you guys for questions. If there are questions, Zenith said there's, there's a roving mic that does go around, so please, during these panelists, but perhaps just let them get through their five minutes each, um, but thereafter, just be, feel free to, to challenge us, ask us questions. The best thing about a moderator is I generally have no clue what the answers are, but I can just defer them to them, and then I still look quite smart. So without further ado, I'm going to just ask Shane to give us a, a five-minute overview and his, uh, his thousand-mile view, a thousand-foot view of the industry and where it's positioned at the moment. Thanks, Shane. Uh, thanks, Byron. Um, so good afternoon. My name is Shane Watkins. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of All Weather Capital. Our business is uh, owned and controlled by John Willifant, who was previously chairman of the GEPF or the PRC, and uh, Romeo Makabela. Um, we run a, about a billion rand in hedge funds, and um, I suppose if I had to describe you know, to you the, the, the compelling rationale to go into hedge funds, it really relates to the lack of correlation that the returns of hedge funds should have to other classes. Now, that's not to say that hedge funds have um, had this lack of correlation. Um, for a number of years, South African hedge funds have tended to have a lot of uh, net equity market exposure and... Um, uh, you know, in a bull market that has served them well, uh, less well of late. Um, but I think that the reason you're investing in hedge funds is for the lack of correlation that you'd have with equities, bonds, property, uh, and so on. I mean, if you invested in any of those three categories I just mentioned, you're clearly taking the view that, you know, asset prices in that category are going up. Where if you invest with a hedge fund, um, you, you're sort of betting that Fashini is going to outperform Truist or Pick and Pay is going to outperform ShopRite or, you know, Billiton is going to outperform Anglo-American. You're not taking a view on how Anglo-American or, or any of those other companies that I mentioned are going to perform. So, you know, the, I guess it's the main reason would be that, to invest would be that the industry or the, the fund should be uncorrelated with other asset classes that you're exposed to. Um, I think another reason to invest in hedge funds, uh, um, although I may not be a best example of this, but I think it does attract the best brains in the industry. I mean, it's true that you know most of the most successful managers uh, that I've worked with now run their own hedge fund, um, and it, I think it's also true that most guys that get stuck in big institutional environments either, you know, are, are, are not that ambitious or flamboyant, or alternatively you know, that kind of creativity is stifled in a large institution. So a combination of, you know, lack of correlation plus hopefully um, slightly smarter guys, I think is for me the main reason to, to be invested in hedge funds. Shane, what are the risks that in the time of crisis everything correlates to one in the South African market? I mean, it, it has shown to be the case 
at, uh, during the, the global financial crisis within the offshore space. It didn't happen here. I mean, do we face that risk that this theory and the research that we know and the history actually breaks down at some point in time? Look, you know, as I said, you know, the, the thing is most um, um, the hedge fund fee structure, um, obviously, uh, in a prior to fees being capped, encourages hedge fund managers to some degree to dialing quite a bit of risk. Now, as investors in hedge funds, what you should be paying for is alpha and not beta. You know, the, how the market does shouldn't really affect you, but if you invested in a hedge fund that, you know, um, for most of the time is 60% net long the market, then, you know, if the market falls 10, you're going to fall 6. And, you know, I would say for a decade now, South African hedge fund managers by and large have made money by being between 40 and 60% net long the market. And that has worked pretty well while the market's been going up. Um, you know, I would think that unless there's a, a, a very compelling reason to be long in a certain situation, um, hedge fund managers should do equally well in a rising or falling market. I mean, the whole purpose of hedge funds is that, for me, that they can, they can outperform in a rising and a falling environment, and uh, they shouldn't be reliant on markets going up to, to make money. Um, I, I just think that, you know, we've, since probably 2008 to now, we've had sort of a seven or eight year bull market, and it seemed pretty obvious to everyone just to be long. Um, perhaps in this environment, uh, you know, which is where it's less obvious that you should just be long the equity market, um, maybe this will attract further inflows into hedge funds, because clearly at the moment it's not obvious that you should simply be long the market either internationally or locally. Thanks. Andrew? Thanks, Byron. I think my five minutes can get cut to two and a half, seeing as Capricorn Capital, half of our business sits in London, and we manage half our assets in a global emerging markets hedge fund. So um, thanks for making my speech a bit shorter. Easy. Always a pleasure. So Capricorn, started, uh, sorry, Capricorn Fund Manager started in 2003. Uh, we were born out of the sort of the broader Hollard group. Um, we do still have them as a backer. They seeded our first mandate back in 2003, and we actually call it the Hollard Stable Fund. Um, I suppose, in sort of uh, um, in lieu of their cash. They are shareholders of our business. Um, we've got 20 people in our business. Half of them sit in Johannesburg and half of them sit in London. We run three strategies in South Africa and one out of our London office, which is our emerging markets fund. Um, we're talking about hedge funds and where they fit in, our, in, in, in sort of the allocation process and the South African landscape. You've got to take a step back and actually say what hedge fund you're actually investing in. The word hedge fund is a pretty amorphous sort of concept that can mean anything. Um, from a South African perspective, broadly speaking, we are quite vanilla. We don't have that many asset classes to um, get involved in. And on top of that, the majority of the hedge funds, apart from asset classes, are primarily sort of equity long or short strategies. At Capricorn, we are equity specialists, so we obviously um, only participate in the, in, in the equity markets. And I think you actually sometimes have to sort of demystify a couple of issues around hedge funds. And Byron said we couldn't really mention, obviously, offshore hedge funds, but there, a couple of names have been pillared in the, in, 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 in the broader sort of uh, financial press of late in terms of their recent performance. Certainly the likes of Crispin O'Day, uh, Joel Greenblatt, and uh, um, our, our man from Pershing Square who are all down 30-odd percent. But I think you've got to take it in context of where they come from and what they have done in the past. Specifically, I think from a hedge fund perspective, 
I suppose if you allocate money to the equity markets or the fixed income markets uh, or, or, or the yielding markets from a property perspective, you know what you're trying to achieve with what you allocate. And every single hedge fund is different in terms of what they actually approach. So you've got to understand the actual hedge fund mandate you're actually putting your cash into. For example, we've got two funds, and I don't want to speak about Capricorn in specifics, but it's obviously easiest for me because obviously I understand it the best, is we've got two strategies. One's a performance strategy which tries to replicate an equity-type return at lower volatility. Um, and admittedly, I am speaking in front of actually, so I'm not going to delve too deeply into the specifics because I think you guys will build me alive in, in, that, in that regard. And our second strategy, our stable fund, is something that will never ever keep up with the bull market, as Shane mentioned, that you've had from 2008 to now. What that fund does, and it's just briefly in terms of its specifics, it can never be more than 50% net exposed to the market. So what we try to do is actually get or try to participate in two-thirds of the upside of the market while only participating in a third of the downside. And I think that downside participation is a key sort of metric how you actually have to view hedge funds. And it goes to what Shane's saying from a correlation perspective against other asset classes. And for us, if we can decrease the down, or if we can minimize the downside specifically, we've actually done our job. So with that stable fund since 2003 um, and net of fees, Byron, um, we've done 16%. We're coming to that, don't okay, fine. You can ask Shane that question, though. But uh, from 2003, we've done 16% net of fees compound return. We've never had a negative year, including 2008, and we've done it at volatility, which is a third of the market's volatility. Now, granted, obviously, you only got 50% exposure to that market, but my point, I suppose, in a roundabout way is that what your aim for a hedge fund is is that it's not there to replace equity exposure in a portfolio, but it's certainly there to complement an allocation in a broader portfolio metric to actually get that risk return uh, sort of profile in, 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 in the correct view. Where we are from an industry at the moment, as Byron said, we're very small. I like to call us the redheaded stepchild of the, uh, of the asset allocation uh, sort of industry because we're tiny. We are irrelevant. But being irrelevant makes us or enables us to actually trade and actually gain that alpha, as Shane said, in that we aren't trading against other hedge funds. And I think you've got that in the overseas markets where you've had this proliferation of hedge funds and hedge fund strategies. In South Africa, it's a very small sort of, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very small sort of collegial environment. So when I'm trading some of our strategies, I'm not trading against Shane, I'm trading against big, slow, lazy, institutional type money. And I think that's another area where South Africa can be thankful because from a hedge funds perspective that there is that growth vector. It's not, it's not an overtraded market. So I think we can carry on more, mm. but I mean, I think you can yes, just... No, that's perfect. Thanks, Will. I can never shut up. I just want to quickly uh, jump in because it's in my nature. We allocate to hedge funds as well. So as a fund of fund, we've been allocating, as I mentioned, for a number of years. Shane did mention that he thinks they're the brightest other than him bunch in the market. You know, I think it's not, that's not how we view the industry and it's not how we view the manager set or the, um, the asset class, if that's the correct way of, uh, of assigning it. We just think they've got different tools in their toolbox, toolbox, to be completely and utterly simplistic about it. They have the ability to short, they've got the ability to leverage, and they've got the ability of size, exactly as has just been mentioned. So they're trading in a far more nimble ma manner. They are shorting where appropriate particularly as a hedging, uh, from a hedging perspective, and they are ut utilizing leverage, sometimes very poorly, um, but they are utilizing le leverage occasionally and appropriately as well. Those are the things that really we think is, are the key differentiators here. So it's an opportunity for investors to access a different tool set rather than this uh, bunch of geniuses, which we don't think they are. Sorry, Shane. Um, I, think can I, ask I think you just called me stupid there, Barry. <laughs> Luckily, being a, being a tiny business, we all know each other quite well. Um, 
Andrew, just a quick question to divert a bit. I mean, you also deal with clients. With this new hedge fund CIS world that's coming down the tracks, well, not really down the tracks, but that is coming upon us quite quickly, and concerns in the institutional space about fees, and we see a general move towards lower fees, non-performance fees in the institutional space driven by Treasury, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is there still a future for hedge funds in the institutional space, given these issues, or is it going to revert to what effectively was the origin of hedge funds offshore, which was the playground of ultra-high net worth, high net worth individuals, and the more astute retail, in, retail investor? Yeah, I think by, by definition, if you have this wall of money coming at hedge funds, irrespective of the fees, you're going to get a dilution of returns. Um, I'm obviously not opposed to charging performance fees for a product. The caveat there is that it has to deliver on the strategy. So if you've got a mandate and you want to achieve a particular, uh, a particular return set with a risk profile, I'm very comfortable standing in front of anyone to defend the fees as long as you actually do deliver those return, those return profiles. Once again, going back to the overseas example, in the sense that I think where they've got it wrong is that they've had a misunderstanding of what they were able to achieve from a returns perspective while still charging very high fees. So you can't, you can't charge, for example, net 3% a year when you're only generating 3.5% return. Um, in terms of South African context, I think I'll divide up the, 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 the question. For in a retail sort of wealth manager IFA space, I don't think hedge funds are going to get a, a, a sort of deep allocation from the broad industry. I think it's going to be 100 to 120 of the top IFAs in the country. And I think they're probably about 3,000, give or take a couple. Um, so that's the target market. In terms of the institutional space, where the pension funds decide on performance fees and non-performance fees is what they decide. I think the investor and the allocator into a hedge fund is going to understand the risks that he's taking, he's going to understand the return series he's getting, and he's going to be prepared to pay for that. And if the individual's happy with the, with, with, with the cost metric, I think it's, it's a moot point. I do agree with you in terms of downward pressure on fees, but I think that's more from a general sort of market perspective. And I don't think hedge funds are out there to actually take the majority of the, of the pie, so to speak. Okay. I mean, I think we'll, as I've alluded to, I think we'll, we'll have a broader-based fee discussion in a bit. I just want to give Grant a chance. Grant, I don't want to call you an outsider, but you're not, you know, you're not from within the industry, so to speak, like the rest of the panel, but you're an allocator. Just, if you can just give us a sense in your breakdown on, on how you view the asset class, once again, whether that's the correct um, description is, is once again also moot, but uh, how you view it, why you allocate, and what your perceptions and experiences have been um, with the asset class over time. Thank you, Byron. <clears throat> um, for those of you who might have seen from the app, I work for the Reserve Bank, so I just need to point out, I'm not going to tell you which way the interest rate's going, I'm not going to give you an official Reserve Bank opinion. What I am going to tell you is what we've done as the retirement fund and what our thought process was. Um, essentially, over the last 18 months or so, we've recognized that the investment landscape has changed completely. Um, and what I mean by that is over the last couple decades, you could pretty much throw money at equities and get a good return. What we noticed particularly last year was that equities were at an all-time high, trading on extremely long PEs, global growth is under pressure, <coughs> local growth is under pressure. So with that backdrop, we had to reconsider our investment strategy. What we tried to do is find something that can perhaps diversify without dropping returns 
and in fact, as far as possible, to try and keep an equity-like return. So that's where we started looking at hedge funds, trying to fill that space. Um, particularly noting the fact that if anything in the environment we're at now, where there's uncertainty around the world, the states, are they going to raise the rates? Aren't they going to raise the rates? China, are they collapsing? Aren't they collapsing? Is the commodity cycle going to come back? Is Brexit, is uh, Greeks in or out? No one really knows, but in a cycle of such volatility, it was also not just an opportunity for hedge funds to help protect downside, but in fact it's an opportunity within the hedge fund space to eke out extra returns. So we started introducing it last year, um, shifting a bit of our equity exposure towards a hedge fund, um, and it proved quite successful for us. It certainly mitigated a lot of downward uh, pressure when uh, Nene Gate, etc., happened around November, December, and it's, it was a successful solution for us. Um, and one of our funds, in particular, where we have our pensioners' portfolio and our high exposure to equity, the exposure we put into our hedge fund was the difference between that fund having a loss for the year and turning 50 million rand profit. So our pensioners are quite happy with that because they got an increase for the year. Um, but as a board of trustees and an investment committee, it definitely gave us a completely new arrow in our quiver to help uh, ensure reasonable and sustainable long-term returns, but diversify the risk in what can only be determined as a very risky environment at the moment. I mean, so it was a, a tactical allocation that worked quite well in the relatively short term, but is that how you would view those allocations going forward? As an investment committee, would you seek to make those kind of tactical plays in conjunction, obviously, with your advisors? Or is it simply a long-term strategic allocation, given exactly as you've, uh, as you've outlined, questions about the sustainability of primarily equity returns at these levels in, in future? The answer is uh, yes to both, actually. It's both a, a long-term view. It has formed part of our stochastic model. Uh, to have a, a portion that does provide that diversif diversification. What we as an investment committee have actually built into our mandate is an ability to also take slightly shorter term strategic allocations. Uh, last year what we exercised was the short term allocation where we ratcheted up to our maximum hedge exposure. That doesn't mean we'll necessarily keep it there, but uh, it does serve a very, very strong uh, option for us in both the long-term and in the, the short-term volatility management toolset. Right, thank you. Bruce, last but not least, as I mentioned, he knows just about everything about the fixed income market and particularly fixed income hedge funds, so something that's a little bit different because, as, as has been mentioned a couple of times, we've tended to be very equity-centric in this space, but it is something that has grown over the years, fixed income funds. Bruce has been involved with one of those, but is now involved in a far more broad-based um, structure in funds across the country and across multiple strategies as well. Thanks, Baron. Hi. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me here. First thing I want to say is I don't agree with what Byron said about following ethics. Uh, hedge fund industry, we're all about ethics. Um, <laughs> thanks, so don't Bruce. worry. We 100% happy to follow that last presentation. Um, being the fixed income guy, I guess I get to go last. Uh, it was a little unfortunate sitting here listening to everything I was going to say and having to scratch it off as it was said by other people. Um, but 
I've been around since 2000, beginning of 2004 in the hedge fund space. Um, it's by on YouTube primarily in the fixed income space. Prior to that, though, I started out on the bond trading floor at the JSC. Then I worked for a big international bank. And I was on the first panel of, of official government bond market makers in South Africa during 98, which is where all my hair went. Um, and then I moved to the institutional space and I, I joined Sunlum and the fixed income team. I ran the trading desk and then some of the long only portfolios for a while. So I've kind of been in a lot of different facets of the industry. And the one thing that I've just never understood, which is why for me the hedge fund space is, is such an exciting place to operate, is what Byron mentioned when he sort of took the thunder I was saving, is the tool set. So short or long, I'm agnostic. My background, it doesn't mean anything to me whether you're buying or selling something. I do understand that in the equity space, it's a little bit harder, particularly when the market generally goes from bottom left to the top right historically. Um, and so maybe there's it's a little bit more of a skill set required in the equity space choosing what to, to sell. But in the fixed income space, you know, markets tend to, yes, they have structural shifts up and down, but they tend to trade in bands. To say you want to be invested only in a long-only product and then maybe look around for another option um, in the space when, when you think bond yields are too low is a little bit limited. To have the opportunity to be able to make money in both legs of the cycle is something that is just fits intuitively um, and, and I think it's a smart way of investing your money. Obviously there's two opportunities to make money and two opportunities to lose money, which is why as allocators you find people tend to be a little bit nervous of the hedge fund space um, and, and, and maybe a little sort of less understanding because you're effectively buying a fast car and a driver. Um, rather than choosing the driver yourself, which is long equities or long bonds, you might get a, a driver that can make few little nuances or differences, tweaks around benchmarks, but in the hedge fund space you are very much picking uh, a, a vehicle that can do donuts, it can go in reverse, it's got five gears, and, and who drives it is of critical importance. Fortunately in our industry though, there's enough history now. There's quite a few funds that have got decent assets under management. Um, there's uh, track records that go back, I mean mine goes back to the beginning of 2004 and uh, I like to think I'm one of the originals, but it's not true in the fixed income space. Yes, there's some equity managers have been around for a long time. So, you know, you can certainly do your analysis and see who's out there. The, I think the bigger 10 players have got the bulk of the industry sewn up. Um, so it's an exciting space, I would assume, for allocators, given the environment that some of my, my panelist colleagues spoke about. You know, equities look extended. There's a lot of volatility in the equity market. Um, we don't know what's going to happen to the global macro environment, whether equities are going to, um, whether, you know, sort of the equity markets are going to come off aggressively or not. Um, bond market, bond yields look particularly low. I'm not going to ask you whether rates are going up or not, but certainly, you know, there's not that, doesn't appear to be that much obvious opportunity on, on the long only side. So hedge fund offer a vehicle that allows you to take advantage of full cycles um, in an investment vehicle. And, um, so I think we're here to stay. We've been here for quite a long time. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about the regulatory changes. I mean, Byron mentioned the fact that now, you know, we're going to, we've been let in to the, to the, the area around the wave pool at Sun City. Everyone else has been basking there for, for quite a while um, in the regulated um, unit trust space. Now, the, I guess the, the big trick for us is to show that we can swim. Um, it's an opportunity for us. It doesn't mean walls of money are going to come our way. We're very aware of that. Um, but it does allow us to showcase our wares alongside everybody else. Um, 
So I'm, I'm very optimistic for the retail space. And from an institutional perspective, I, I guess, you know, we kind of assumed that when Reg 28 got a fixed hedge fund category, we'd see more interest. But I guess people have been a little more cautious and the equity bull market has been a little bit uh, more pronounced than we thought. So maybe this is now the time for hedge funds. Um, but yeah, I think it's an industry full of, I won't say the smartest people necessarily, but certainly some of the more savvy people um, that, that I've come across in, in my 20 years in the industry. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of about it. Okay, thanks Bruce. Um, are there any specific questions at this stage that, you, that, that anyone wants to pose before I go into the more? No? Is there one there? We, uh, we have a couple of questions coming through on the app. We have okay, an we'll app where people can then, okay. Could you want to do it yeah, later? Okay, cool. So just to go back to contextualizing, and Bruce, Bruce briefly mentioned it now, and leading into just some more information on the industry, the biggest fund, single strategy fund or house, I suppose is the better way of describing it is approximately 10 billion rand in size. So once again, not enormous, but relatively large, but it's very much a barbell structure that we have in place. The top 10 managers are by far the behemoths from an AUM perspective in the industry. And we face, and we have a small a set of very small niche emerging managers that are managing anything from five to 10 million rand, often just some PA or prop money or whatever the case may be in very small portfolios. So we see quite a big differential between these between these two. And with that in mind, the other aspect, and it comes back to the size that I mentioned before, is we know hedge funds typically, although this might change in this retail world that we're entering into, they don't typically seek to aggressively gather assets. I don't think it's sustainable to have a 50 billion rand hedge fund, to be quite honest, that's, that's active in the market and successful in the market. So with that in mind, one has to be cognizant about the, the economics behind the businesses. And it brings into, into bear, and I mentioned earlier, the, the pressure from, from a regulatory perspective on fees, but one also has to be cognizant about how much fund managers are charging when they're only running 100 million rand. Um, you know, is that a viable economic model to, to sustain them and their businesses on a 30-bit fee scale? It's obviously not. So it, it, the, the fees are a thorny issue. The one thing that perhaps you guys can answer, and I'll ask you generally to give me an answer later, I still, it perplexes me, and, um, and um, I think it was Andrew mentioned earlier, perplexes me still that a lot of investment performance in the long-only space is still reported as gross. And I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crime against the investor for them to be looking at gross numbers at, in, at any level. So the fees are the fees in the hedge fund space. They're a lot. They're expensive. As a fund of fund, I've seen fees at a single strategy level, TERs at 6% sometimes more. But that's obviously at the top of a, of a performance fee cycle, at the very peak of that cycle. It obviously doesn't sustain at that level over through a long-term cycle, but you can get areas where that happens. You're now seeing a fund of fund fee on top of that. You're now seeing a CIS fee on top of that, including trading costs, which are very high in some funds and some strategies. We could see big numbers coming onto these fact sheets. So I said earlier, we've got to be careful what we wish for. We now around the wave pool at Sun City, as Bruce said. The problem is that on our new fact sheets that we release both to our institutional investors and the retail guys, there's going to be this thing called a TER that's going to be disclosed. And that's going to be a point of great debate when those numbers start to come out. They'll be massively variable. There'll be some that are low. There's some that, that will seem um, exorbitant in their, in their, in their <coughs> volumes. So 
To contextualize what we know about the industry, I think probably the most expensive hedge fund, a single strategy hedge fund around, you you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, it's probably two and 20 from zero. You know, that's really at the top limit. Those are the older funds. Very few of those left. Very few that can sustain that kind of fee model going forward. On the cheaper end, we're probably at zero and 15, zero and 10, where guys are only charging a performance fee above a hurdle, typically cash or sometimes even a market-related hurdle. And it depends when you crystallize the fee, and there are a whole lot of other issues at, at, um, at play on this fee model. But the point is it's changing, and it's not going up. That we know for sure. But the pressures are there, and we just have to be cognizant of how a lower fee environment will affect managers who tend to focus on operating on a smaller fee base. So not five minutes each, but maybe one minute each from each one of our panelists, and we'll go in the same order again, just to, uh, just to stick with it and start with Shane. Shane, how on earth can these guys charge that much? I mean, how is it justifiable or are we, are we on a hiding to nothing as an industry? Look, I don't, I don't 100% understand this fee debate. The way it works is we invest your money, you get 80% of the returns, we get 20. Now, do you want more returns or do you want less? I mean, the fact that there was a total expense ratio of 6 or 8% meant that year that 80% was a massive number. Would you prefer that that was a smaller number? Then the TR obviously would have been lower. I mean, the fact is that hedge funds earn the bulk of their fees from performance. You get 80% of the performance and the fund manager gets 20%. Do you want more or do you want less? I really don't understand this fixation with what the total expense ratio is. I think you want to do better and we want to do better. I think that, you know, where there's a, a different question is how much risk did that fund manager take to achieve that return and perhaps, you know, in, you know, in that particular year you took an inordinate amount of risk and in a different year it could go wrong. You could also argue that there's some asymmetry because in a good year you'll make a ton of money and in a bad year you'll lose a lot of money and he won't lose anything because, of course, I don't give you the money back in a year where I'm down. So I think that asymmetry is, is, is something that, you know, we need to be honest about. Um, but philosophically, you want to earn more and so do I, and you get 80% of what we make. So you should hope that the 100% is a bigger number, not a smaller number. Um, I also think that, you know, we're in a world where um, interest rates are, are, are lower. I mean. You know, I've read, I don't know, it depends who you believe, but, you know, between a third and 60% of, of government bonds in developed con countries now have negative yields. So, you know, a couple of percent return now is worth much more than what it was five years ago. And, you know, if you go back to the 80s where inflation was a big factor, you know, um, you know high returns were possible. We're now in an environment where in Europe... Um, it's very difficult for the pension funds there because most of the bond and money market assets that they would have traditionally invested in yielding maybe three to five percent now have zero yield. So how do you run a pension fund in an environment where your traditional assets have a yield of zero? Um, and so I, I guess the point I'm making is that, you know, I think in, in the future in the world we can expect a, a lower returns in general. Um, I think that inflation, you know, and I'm by no means an economist, but I mean, inflation doesn't appear to be uh, a, a problem that's likely to surface in the developed world. Um, it doesn't, 
even appear to be a particularly big problem here. Um, and, you know, there are many factors that are acting against inflation. Um, so I think returns will be lower. Um, one of the factors that you need to consider is that hedge funds in general earn their fees beyond a certain hurdle. Now, that hurdle in South Africa tends to be kind of the cash rate, which is, I don't know, call it 7%. And so we only start to earn money on your money once we've paid you what you would have earned if you put the money in the bank. And I think that's something to take into account, that the performance only kicks in once we've at least earned you what you would have earned had you put the money in the bank. Um, yeah, I think fees are going to be a big issue, but you know, I tend to think that this is sort of one of those situations where if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's an easy thing for regulators to point to. The answer is actually not necessarily that simple. Thanks. Yeah, um, just to start off with, when you guys did your tactical allocation December, did you get any money from them? Because we, we didn't. Uh, okay, so you wanted to clear that up. So I agree with uh, Shane. Um, I, the infatu infatuation with cost, I think, is derived from the fact that on the other side of the coin, the, those pension funds and those in institutions aren't getting the returns. Um, so the first thing you look for, obviously, is, is, is going back to your suppliers. Um, I've never felt, uh, um, I suppose, for you eat your own cooking. I mean, all the guys in our business, as well as our shareholders, pay the same fees as our, as our, as our clients. I think the fee and the performance fee element shouldn't be targeted. It's more the benchmark around those fees, which is very important. Secondly, I think from a performance fee culture, if you have got a boutique or a smaller AUM um, that you manage, the majority of your revenue for your business will be derived from performance fee, as opposed to the large behemoth like a coronation of 600 billion who can just survive on the asset management fee alone and have no pressure to obviously perform. Um, yeah, so in a nutshell, I think it's basically size dependent and the fact that it's more the benchmark that's, that, that's key than, than the actual performance fee element and the higher TRs. Um, before you go, just I'm not going to let you off the benchmark that easily and maybe between you and Shane. I mean, then is cash an appropriate hurdle or is, what do we need market-related benchmarks above which performance fees are earned? Uh, it, it depends. I mean, it, once again, we're back to the strategy that you actually run. So the stable fund that we run where you've got 50% net exposure, our benchmark is CPI. And in my view, and I might be wrong, and I'm happy to debate it, but if I'm able to compound over CPI over, over time and avoid the large drawdowns, I'm happy with life. You know, I think if you have got a, a zero hurdle and you manage a 100% sort of net long portfolio, then it could be debatable. But once again, it comes down to if the investor is happy with the risk and the return that the fund manager is giving him, I think it's a moot point. Uh, you know, Byron, uh, as I said, I mean, I think in South Africa, you know, we've had, I don't know, 200 basis points increase in interest rates, maybe it's 150, I'm not sure, over the last two years. Um, you know, obviously that's come directly out of the fees that the fund manager would have earned as the hurdle goes up. And I'm not sure that cash is the right, the right hurdle rate because, um, uh, you know, perhaps the, the hurdle should be uh, some kind of benchmark that's a combination of the performance of the equity market, the performance of the fixed income market, and cash. Um, you know, interest rates in South Africa, I think in 98, they went up to 25% in the short run. I mean, how can a hedge fund manager earn 25%, you know, in that environment you don't have a business? So I tend to think that it's a little bit simplistic to say let's at least, you know, you must beat cash. I mean, because in reality, no one that I know 
has a binary choice of, I'm either going to put this in cash or I'm putting it in a hedge fund. I mean, no one says that. So in reality, um, perhaps the hurdle rate should be something of, uh, we should construct something that's more reflective of our alternatives, which would be a combination of cash, fixed income, and equities. Grant, your, your perceptions as an investor into this um, your fees are too high moderately expensive environment? Sorry. Um, look, definitely there's a focus on fees. Um, it's, it's a general rhetoric that keeps getting beat by every board of, of trustees, the regulators, etc., all focused on cost. Um, but we recognize the fact that we're in a different environment at the moment. Um, there's certain asset classes that one can uh, quite easily reduce fees with perhaps not necessarily reducing the returns. Um, and I think the key here is, is what that benchmark is and what that hurdle is. Uh, I'm also of exactly the same opinion that as long as you're giving me inflation plus returns, um, I'm willing to pay for it. But again, I think as time progresses and if more people start moving into the space and returns start getting uh, shortened, then you might find the, the focus on costs will raise its head again. For right now, we, we're looking at alternate forms of investment categories, uh, different subject today. We're also looking at private equity. But again, we, we're considering these historically expensive asset classes because they do offer a new element of return and hopefully a new element of real return. And we see that in the traditional spaces of getting those returns, it's, it's not as easy to do so now. So we are willing to pay a very small premium for that. So a uh, little nervous to enter this debate now, but uh, I think the two things that are, are of critical importance here is the benchmark. We've, we've gone through an exercise with our parent company about some of the money they allocate and, and it actually started out quite aggressively and ended up in a kind of a flop down in the chair, okay, maybe cash is the best benchmark because the rest aren't actually that relevant. If you start making it an equity benchmark, then it's really relevant for long short managers, it's totally relevant for fixed income managers. You start driving managers into the bucket where the long only guys operate again, where you start taking bets against the uh, top 40 or something like that. And so you kind of, you start changing the nature of, of the product and the manager managing the product. Maybe each fund you should negotiate your benchmark clients and, and the underlying manager. They come up with what's appropriate rather than necessarily having something that's industry standard. On the actual fee side of it though, um, from my side, I think that management fees are a nice thing to get to keep the doors open and pay the bills. And we all definitely need a level of, of uh, management fee, but we work for our performance fees. If you reduce that component of the industry as well, then we become asset gatherers rather than alpha seekers. And that really, I think, would be probably the end of efficient hedge fund management. Um, I don't necessarily have any anything against maybe capping the upside. Um, there probably does need to be some kind of sanity check and say, yes, you know, if you do really well, you can make a lot of money, but this is the, the ceiling. Um, 
but I also think that perhaps maybe in the retail space, it, well, it is going to be kind of regulated there, but in the institutional space, maybe it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation with investors. But I would definitely advise against people looking to generate additional return for their pension funds by beating down managers' fees. I think that that is not the way to go about it. Um, I just want to say something I think is quite interesting. It's not really applicable in our market, but it is applicable in the United States. Now, there's been a, a, a very um, uh, a prominent rise of exchange-traded funds. Now, ETFs um, can track anything. You know, you can get a growth ETF, a momentum ETF, an ETF that focuses on mining, an ETF on emerging markets, an ETF on S&P 500. It doesn't matter what it is. The point is that ETF flows in general are completely passive. So if I'm managing an emerging market ETF and I get a $100 million inflow, I just look at what the MSCI emerging market index is and I buy in proportion to that. I don't say Fashini is expensive, MTN is cheap, I don't care. I just buy in proportion to the ETF. Okay. Now, um, and you can go check these numbers yourself. I don't exactly know what they are, but I think about a third of the US market uh, in terms of market cap is, um, is money that the underlying beneficial holders are ETFs. But about 70% of all new flows go into ETFs. So why this is kind of interesting is because it in time will tend to make the US market less efficient because the managers that are buying and selling the underlying securities um, or, or the buying and selling is dominated by people that are investing or disinvesting from an ETF. And so uh, it, it's something that the American academics have been writing about and that they're a little bit concerned about and that it will result in significantly greater inefficiencies in the market. I mean, if, if everyone is 100% indexed, then obviously enormous inefficiencies can arise because the most money will flow into the biggest weighting companies in the ETF and no money will ever flow into companies that have no weighting in the ETF. And so, you know, I, I think, and ETFs are becoming more predominant in South Africa. Um, so I think it, it, it will result in, um, or it can result in greater inefficiencies, um, which result in greater opportunities. Um, having said that, you know, the, the, the well-known US investors have done quite badly of late, I'm talking about hedge funds, and, um, you know, the thing that I've learned over 20 years the hard way is that inefficiencies can persist for much longer than what you think they can, sometimes virtually forever. So, you know, the, the, there are these factors that drive rising and falling levels of efficiency and inefficiency. By that I mean assets that correctly reflect the, the fundamentals and asset prices that don't reflect the fundamentals. And I think one of the great services that the hedge fund industry does not altruistically, but just to make money, is that we tend to arbitrage these inefficiencies and, as a consequence, make the market in totality a bit more efficient. Thanks, Shane. I just want to just kind of put another thing out there, and once again, whoever on the panel wants to take it up, um, they, can, they can raise their hands, but just to get away from the, the issues around fees and things for a second. Shane's mentioned the international situation, the flows, although I promised this would be a domestic discussion earlier. I'm already breaking that promise. But effectively, the industry, as I mentioned earlier, is approximately 60 to 70 billion rand. 
the vast majority, and Bruce and I had this discussion earlier outside, the vast majority of the flows in the last year, two, if not even more, have actually come from offshore. The institutional allocations locally, there have been no retail or very muted retail allocations, that might change as we've discussed, but we've seen a massive, relatively massive um, influx of dollar-based funds. Most hedge funds locally, particularly the bigger ones with, with, with the operational capabilities to do so, have launched dollar classes. That's where they're getting the assets from, that's where they're getting the flows from. So what we're seeing is international investors identifying almost what Shane is saying, that this little market of ours is highly regulated, highly ethical, Bruce, um, and you know, relatively efficient and developed, but yet there are still these opportunities, whether it's a simple ARB opportunity that might emerge or a deep valuation opportunity that might emerge. They've identified it, and that's where the flows are coming from. I'm just um, interested in our panel's opinions around that is whether we almost have missed a trick here. The, the international guys have come in, they've filled their, filled their boots to a large extent, and if we think that there's some sort of cap on this industry in size, let's hope it's about 500 billion and not 65, that could very quickly be eaten up by the, these more astute international investors, and we might find ourselves playing second fiddle in terms of fighting for secondary allocations into this industry. I don't know if you agree with that or... Uh, what your comments yeah, are? I think to the corollary to that, you've got to understand that it might be just an extension of that global search for yield. Yeah, and in absolutely. the developed markets yeah. with zero inflation and zero interest rates, um, a destination like South Africa with relatively high structural interest rates as well as obviously companies that can print headline earnings per share growth of 20 to 25%, you know, it becomes quite an attractive destination. Um, secondly to that, I think in the last sort of 10 to 13 years, SA hedge fund managers have delivered exceptional returns after fees. I think they've been a big attraction point for those sort of uh, guys in, in the States and in Europe and in, and and even in Hong Kong. And those returns are in dollars. And then in dollars, in dollars, in dollars. yeah. So, I mean, mm. it's, 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 it's there and it's, it's, not, it's not something that's, uh, that's yeah, it's justifiable. So I think maybe it's a global search for yield as well as obviously it's a market that we're very lucky to operate. We're lucky to have the companies we have in South Africa. The nice thing about the JSC, it isn't a, um, it doesn't mirror the sort of SAGDP print. What's 60% of the top 40's earnings come from offshore. Our managers are exceptional, um, and I'm talking about the corporate managers, and we obviously are lucky enough to allocate um, amongst, amongst those counters. On the size issue, I do agree with you. I mean, of the 400-odd names on the, on, on the market, we probably play in 110, 120 maximum. So from a scale perspective, um, yes, 65 is far too small, but I think when you start getting into that number that you mentioned, and we all hope, I think then you start getting to sort of capacity constraints in terms of the strategies we can execute. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. If you look at, the, say, the South African retail sector, I mean, easily anywhere between 50 and 80% of our retailers are owned by foreigners. So the foreigners believe in our retailers. The locals don't own any retailers. They want to buy British American Tobacco, SAB Miller, Richmond, anything that's not South African. So the foreigners are running, the foreigners are climbing in here and the locals are running offshore. And it, uh, you know, it, it's these two kind of colliding waves. We, we don't know which is bigger, but um, it, it's intriguing to me that you know the locals are such skeptics on South Africa, and the foreigners have exhibited such confidence in our, our equity market. 
Sorry, but I, I just want to say that I don't know that that's necessarily a problem with regards to us getting flows in our industry. Um, I, I agree with what you said about who owns our, our assets and who doesn't and, and where we want to put our own savings pool. But from a hedge fund perspective, the foreigners have been exposed to hedge funds for a lot longer than a lot of the domestic guys. And perhaps they see value in, in what the local guys are doing from a return perspective. Also, perhaps from the exchange, the diverse, well, so the kind of companies that we have listed on our exchange. But I, I have seen over the last 10 years or so a lot of apathy from local institutional investors where they regard the amount of work required to do to understand the hedge fund industry as too big relative to the potential benefit it might bring to their pension funds. And I think that's something that we need to overcome as an industry. I don't know whether it's our industry's problem or whether it's investors' problem. I guess it's our industry's problem given that we're not seeing the flows. But at the end of the day, when you can have an industry that generally does in the region on a net amongst the, the bigger players double inflation um, through cycles, that should be appealing to local pension fund investors, it really should. And if you think that the only real complexity to the hedge fund space is that you're giving the manager the opportunity to use leverage and short selling, you're not really changing the environment that much. You're giving them the flexibility to invest through cycles rather than just hit a wall if interest rates go up or you know, a global economy crashes or growth crashes. So it shouldn't be that big a hurdle for local investors to, to overcome to understand the space we play in. Probably one of the things that is maybe a, a, a detractant is that each individual hedge fund operates in a different fashion. So you actually have to do quite a lot of research across the hedge fund spectrum to pick the managers that you want. Um, it's not nicely packaged for you the way the current traditional space is. All right, thanks, guys. I'm just cog conscious of time. Um, Zenat, do you read out the questions? How does this work? I can read it out or you can choose which ones you want to ask. Ah, them. that's even better. Choose the, choose the easy ones, the, the non-fee related questions. This is, hey, now I've got to take my glasses off. Hang on. You. Oh, okay, so the question is around transformation in the industry. I mean, I think anybody who thinks it's good is delusional. Um, I know I can see Shane's already uh, lining himself up for this because I know his position on this is very strong. In fact, we've got two people that are um, quite keen to, answer, to hear their answers here. Obviously, Bruce, uh, I, we'd love to hear about your initiatives as well. Uh, it's been a, it has been a criticism of our industry over time, and once again, I th there is no excuse for it. But I think more importantly, I, I'm interested in what, uh, what the what the, the members here have thought and, and really what's happening at the moment. And then, sorry, actually, maybe, Grant, I'll just ask you to comment. I mean, is it a, is it a consideration for you as a board of trustees from an allocation perspective as well? Um, sorry, so just to answer that part very quickly, it is a consideration. We consider it through all levels of our, of our organization from how we structure our board of trustees um, honestly, when it comes to, through the investment managers, etc., the questions asked, but I think it's probably going to be asked more robustly going forward. Um, but it is obviously something that is topical and on top of mind for us as an organization. Um, okay, so, Shane, if you don't mind. Um, Transformation is something that I've been involved with within Sunland Group for quite a while. Um, because of what I've done in my business now, I've, I don't know if it's the f 
fortune or the misfortune, I'm now the chairman of the Transformation Committee for the Greater SI Cluster, which is 2,000 people. Um, but I, I think that our industry has been kind of left behind in the dust in this space, and I think that it's critical that um, our businesses do start to embrace transformation. Um, I started in, in my business about three years ago. All of our actual teams are are relatively uh, transformed. We have got of our eight um, senior manager or manager team, it's split four and four. Um, but we're also, we launched the grad program um, two and a half years ago where I actually go and hunt at universities for, for grads to join our team. We've got five young grads in, in the business now. Um, the first, there were four in the first intake. There's three left, one dropped out at the end of last year. We took two in at the beginning of this year. I'm about to start looking again. And it's been amazing the kind of grads we've been able to find and unearth. So we've done it from a manager level, from actual trigger puller, down to the skills transfer and development as well. And you know, from a purely clinical business perspective, I think that it should be um, a way to attract assets for a business. Um, but also from a team cohesion idea generation perspective, I'm a firm believer in transformation. Um, and I, I've seen it work now in our business for the last two years. And, and I have to tell you, it's, it's invigorating being in a team where people come from very different backgrounds, got very different perspectives on the market and different exposures. And one of the things that I've also sort of, I guess, uncovered is this myth that, that, uh, that black people don't want to enter the hedge fund industry because they don't want to take risks. They do. There's just not that many opportunities in terms of people prepared to seed them or bring them into their businesses. So we're trying to do what we can there. And uh, it's been a fantastic journey. And I've no doubt it's going to pay great rewards. Shane? Look, um, our business is 60% black owned and half our staff are black. So clearly we would you know, we would like to see further flows into businesses that are black controlled. I mean, that's, uh, I think that's, but, you know, if you look at this panel in front of you here, I think it's pretty obvious that the progress is rather slow. Um, you know, and Bruce heading up the transformation initiative at Sunlum as a white guy. I mean, you know, you find it slightly idiosyncratic. I mean, the reality so, is... Just hang on one second. I'm so joking, Bruce. There was a black guy, and the reason for it was that I was asked actually to do it because it's actually white people that need to transform. Um, look, I think, you know, that we need to, this industry needs to transform, and I think the truth is progress has been pretty slow. And one of the problems is that, um, so you're the consulting actuary, and they say, look, yeah, there's a whole lot of fund managers that you can choose from. Um, you know, you kind of, do you have some kind of fiduciary responsibility to the underlying beneficiaries to pick someone that, that purely on merit that's going to deliver the best returns, um, or do you choose a young new fund management team that is more representative of our country? I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that black fund managers can't have good returns, it's just that, you know, they tend to be people that have less experience in the industry because of the history of our country. Um, my experience of this, you know, and obviously I do a lot of new business pitches, is that everyone says transformation is really important and it's top of our agenda, and then they give the, they give the mandate to Coronation or Investec. Um, so, you know, I, I think that is something that we have to be conscious of. Um, all I'd really like to say in conclusion is that I see my role as someone that's been in the industry for 20 years. My job is to grow young black talent. 
and impart my knowledge and my skills, okay? And that's how I see my role in my business. I think you can do nothing better than teach someone to do your job and you kind of eventually exit and they take over. So for me, transformation, uh, whatever it means to you, for me it's about skills transfer and that's what I spend most of my time on and it's the thing that I really would like to do. And I think, you know, if we focus more on actually bringing black people into our industry, training them to do the things that we do, then, you know, in five or ten years' time, the industry will be different. Thanks, guys. I mean, um, one of the nice things about this app is you can actually see the names of the people that ask the questions. Um, I'm not going to put Nick. We're not answering your question. Um, <laughs> a couple about fees, about the asymmetric nature of fees, but I think something that we, we could just... I'll just elaborate on for a second because we are running out of time is can the performance fee pool not be smooth to some degree? So not just so asymmetric in nature. Um, I certainly think it can. There are already initiatives. It's not direct smoothing, but we've seen certainly in my years in this industry, it moved from monthly performance fee to quarterly to annually. We, we have funds now that are on three-year performance fee um, crystallizations. That in effect has a large element of smoothing. The aggressive implementation of high watermarks that are not just cash, sometimes they are market related, you know, has come in and it's a standard in our industry that does provide a little bit of smoothing. Something that I think we're gonna to start to see as well um, in years to come is first loss. So um, you're gonna see the loss, albeit below cash or even below zero, on a fund that first loss down to a level might be directly attributable to the manager and his pool of assets and the assets sitting in the performance fee pool. So effectively, he's taking the first loss um, of any downturn or any failure uh, per se in the fund to meet its objective. So I think we're seeing a change in the asymmetrical nature of these fee charging methodologies. There's no holy grail and it's not gonna happen overnight, but a lot of initiatives are at play to get, the, to get them um, to in, in effect be smooth, but uh, it's not inconceivable that we could find a, a pure smooth performance fee pool um, in future as well. We also might, I mean, I don't think so, and I think our panel will agree, I'll just speak on their behalf. I don't think fixed fee hedge funds, there might be some that emerge, particularly in the, in the retail space. Um, those may or may not gain traction with investors depending on their needs. So there are, there are a lot of things at play, and, and uh, hopefully we've got the message across that it's definitely in flux. We've seen Brevin Howard cut his fee from 4 and 40 to 35 and 3.5. You know, it's even happening internationally. So it's in place, but uh, it's something that we're working on, a bit like the transformation in the industry as well. Are there any other questions that are not app-based that somebody like me who wouldn't know how to work the app was just happy to put their hand up and, and ask in the, into the mic? We literally have got about a minute left. Okay, guys, thank you. Hopefully this was of some use. I've got 30 seconds for each of the panelists because actually you are only here for one thing. I want them to tell us what their t top pick is for the next, top stock pick for the next year. Um, Grant, you could just give us the interest rate call, all right, as your, uh, as, as your input. Um, quickly, 30 seconds, what stock pick, why for the next 12 months? We know a lot of mentioned NASPAs though, hey? No, okay, ex NASPAS, please. So I'd say Steinhoff. In terms Steinhoff. of the European expansion, what they're able to do, the, the PEP rollout in Poland, as well as obviously Market Justice's uh, skill in his, uh, in, in his amalgamation of what he's been able to do. So definitely Steinhoff, and we love the European exposure.
Shane? Yeah, look, we, you know, we're not betting one share. We're just betting that one, one share outperforms another share. So, um, but just on NASPAS, I just want to say that in South Africa, it's the only avenue that you, can, that you have to play a wave of technological change that is going to completely change our lives at an ever-increasing rate. I mean, I see Norway has just banned the sale of gasoline cars from 2025 onwards. I mean, you know, we're going to have driverless electric cars and it will probably be within a decade, a decade and a half. I mean, who knows? You know, Elon Musk could probably tell you better than me, but it's soon. And if you want to be in front of that, in Aspas is the only way that you can play that in South Africa. You know, you've got Google, Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, blah, 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 sure. In South Africa, we only have one thing we can invest in, which is why NASPAS is such a popular investment and probably such a prudent choice. So, you know, ha having said that, I can't pick that. I, I would pick NASPAS. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard Shane actually put his neck on the block by picking a share, actually. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the interest rate. Um, I don't pick shares. I pick managers. I hope for your sake I've picked right. Perfect. Thanks. Bruce? So any stock I pick, I suggest you short it or find a manager to short it. But uh, I would certainly say be wary of the back end of the yield curve at the moment. There's definitely, I know inflation is not a concern at the moment or overly concerning, but I think that there's not enough risk priced in the back end of the South African bond market. Great, thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for the opportunity to chat to you, and I think on behalf of our panel as well. Um, there is tea now, is that right? So we might hang around if there are any direct questions you guys want and you want to share other than NASPAS out of Shane. Just uh, we'll hang around for a few minutes as well. But thank you for the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Sorry?